Welcome to AML Conversations, the Solution Series. This podcast series focuses on practical information about solutions to challenges you face in your financial crime compliance program. These solutions include managed services, technology, advisory, and third-party risk management. You can access this series and other AML Conversations and This Week in AML podcasts at our website, amlrightsource.com, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to the Solution Series. My name is Rachel, and I'm joined again by Jonathan and Joshua. Hi, guys. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Great to be back. In our previous episodes, we discussed the value of implementation support and why it's essential to choose a partner with experience. In this episode, our final segment on implementation support, we are going to discuss and explore some of the key considerations and things to watch out for during an implementation. Jonathan and Joshua, I'm going to hand this over to you. What are some of the red flags and things that people or organizations need to pay attention to during an implementation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Rachel. And, and, you know, I I think I'd like to just jump into really the the model risk management aspect uh, of going through a system implementation. You know, even if you you don't have a model risk management team, there, there really should be some form of, of model governance framework in place that really w- would require you, you to meet certain objectives and to really have certain evidential documentation before you flip that switch and, and really go live with a, with a new model. Um, you know, and, and a sound governance program is, is not just important for, you, for the ongoing use and management of the model, but it can also really help and support any efforts when preparing for like an audit uh, or exam, you know, and really working with and not against your model risk management team is is certainly important, you know, being well-informed on some of that, the standard requirements from, from a model risk perspective will just help you better understand the purpose of having a model governance framework. And it's also going to help you explain to your MRM team from, from really, you know, the BSA compliance perspective of, what those governance uh, requirements should be as it relates to, let's say, transaction uh, monitoring. You know, there's there's a lot of guidance out there on model risk management. Folks know, you know, OCC 1112, SR 117. One that I found actually very helpful, uh, which came out in, I believe, the summer of 2021 in August was OCC released a new safety and soundness handbook. You know, it doesn't get into very detailed specifics, but in my opinion, it does a good job outlining some of the main components of what's expected, you know, and what should be included, you know, and, and some of the key takeaways, you know, from the guidance that I got it really starts with, you know, what level of board management oversight is typically expected, right? And, and the board should be well-informed and they also should assist in helping set the tone of, of the bank's risk appetite. Um, you know, the type of qualified personnel that should be involved to execute and oversee model risk management. You know, personnel should be able to manage, maintain, test, validate, you know, and, and just overall govern govern the model. Um, model ownership is, is an interesting component. And really, you know, having that model ownership structure, uh, the type of responsibilities, you know, should be documented that, that are expected for, for a model owner. Um, you know, policy procedures, which should define and include, you know, a, a lot of aspects uh, of your overall governance framework, you know, your design controls, 
decision points, you know, roles and responsibilities, you know, and, and really documenting that, that, that as you're going through the implementation and, and, you know, having that in place for, for ongoing monitoring as well. Um, you know, what is model risk? How do you assess model risk? How do you properly identify, you know, the model's capabilities and limitations? Again, you know, all things to, to think about, um, you know, what is a model inventory? What types of components should be included in that model inventory? You know, how do you risk rate a model? Um, so, you know, again, really, there's a lot of components um, that should be thought about for, for, for you know, model implementation. Um, you know, what are the types of methodologies and let's say mathematical calculations, you know, the model employs? They, they should be well documented. You know, they should be clear and easy to read for, for non-technical folks, right? Um, and, and you really need to have that um, well documented to explain to any examiner or auditor on the different you know, types of functionality that you're leveraging within the system as well. Um, a big piece, data management, you know, having the ability to assess model input, inputs to ensure they're reliable. You know, the, the system runs on pretty much data, right? So the saying garbage in, garbage out is certainly true for, for you know, BSA and uh, BSA models as well. And ultimately, you know, what's expected for model validation? You know, how do you evaluate, evaluate the conceptual soundness of the model? Uh, what should your ongoing monitoring plan include? You know, how do you perform process verification? How do you, do you con conduct outcome analysis? Um, you know, so I'm sure I missed some, but there's a lot of things to think about. There's some guidance out there that that's, can be very helpful. Talk to your peer institutions, you know, talk to folks who have, have been through this. Uh, you know, an implementation before. And, and really, you know, a lot of the common mistakes, especially with smaller institutions, is that it's rushed from the start, you know, from selecting the vendor, rushing the implementation, you know, trying to implement a system before your existing SLAs expire with your current vendor, you know, all things to think about uh, when you're doing that implementation. Um, you know, and, and I think ultimately just having that good working relationship with, with those various stakeholders that are, are involved, you know, being transparent on expectations, you know, it's, it's really important and, you know, a lot to think about, but, but definitely um, you really need to be well planned to have that successful implementation. Absolutely, John. And, you know, well, John, John is an expert at regs, and so I usually let him address things that have to do with the nitty-gritty of the regulations. Um, but I think what John was just saying about planning and just laying the groundwork uh, is a sort of perfect lead-in to what I wanted to talk about next, which is just that so often we see situations where people are trying to put new TM systems in in a hurry. And that seldom works out so well, and it seldom serves the financial institutions very well. So one of the first things I wanted to chat about was just planning and starting your planning way in advance. I think people often don't realize how long the process is of deciding on a new TM system, selecting it, implementing it, tuning it, getting it up and running. This is a really long process. And the earlier you start planning and laying the groundwork, the better off you'll be. I'll give you a, just a, 
a quick recent example. Um, we were recently starting a new project to support a financial institution in their implementation of a, a big implementation of, of a new TM system and, and a bunch of modules that go along with it. And the vendor was very gung-ho. It's a vendor we've worked with a lot before. And they said, oh, yeah, we think it, it should take about four months to get this up and running. And I, I kind of laughed and the client kind of laughed. And, and we both said, okay, well, we think it should take 16 months to get this up and running. And the vendor was a little bit shocked. And, and we all kind of had a good laugh just because, you know, the vendor said four months. We said 16 months. We're now quite a few months into that process. And honestly, if we hit the 16-month target, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Um, so just to have realistic expectations up front about how long it takes and to start planning accordingly, realizing that this is this is a long journey, right? It might might be a trip that takes you a year and a half, might even take two years from start to finish, and to just be expecting that. One of the next pieces I wanted to talk about was that as part of this planning process, I think it's really important to articulate why you're getting a new TM system and what the goal of that new TM system is. And let me let me explain what I mean there, and I'll kind of break it into two different categories. I think there's one category, which is, I'll call it the best-in-class slash get-out-of-trouble TM system, and the other category that I'll call the cover-the-basics slash check-the-box TM system. And let me sort of explain what I mean by these two. You know, some people when they're putting in a TM system, they say, hey, if we're going to go through all this time and trouble and expense, let's get the best possible thing we can possibly get on the market. And I think, you know, probably most people agree on what the two or three leading vendors are out there. Um, alternatively, some people are implementing a new TM system because they've already gotten in trouble with the regulators. And for those people, they are almost always going to choose one of those two or three leading vendors on the market because they know that if you implement vendor A's TM system, all the regulators are going to be fine with that. And they're going to be like, oh, cool, they put in vendor A's TM system, we all feel good now. So that's kind of the best in class get out of trouble bucket. Then the other bucket, which, you know, hey, equally, equally valid and equally widespread is folks who aren't looking for a Maserati or a Mercedes, they want a good Honda. And they're just looking to cover the basics to make sure that they're not missing anything glaring on the TM front. And, you know, those folks might have very different needs and might make very different vendor selection choices because they're not looking for a Mercedes. They want something basic that's good enough. Um, and similarly, it might be that folks are thinking about their regulators, but they haven't had any trouble with the regulators. And so it's more a kind of they need to be able to look at the regulator and say, yes, we have a TM system in place, but they're not worried about having the best and greatest TM system because they're not in trouble with the regulators. There's nothing going wrong. They just want to make sure that they've, they've covered the basics and done what they were supposed to do. So all of this planning and even thinking about you know, why you're getting a system in the first place and what does that mean about what kind of system you should be getting, these are really important decisions. And often financial institutions don't kind of take the time to think about the strategic part of this, which is like, hey, why are we getting the system in the first place? What does that mean for the kind of system we need to get? You know, What kind of choices does that lead us to? So I think all of those are really important. Um, and I've got some other sort of, you know, 
big picture things that I want to chat about, but for the moment, I'll throw it back over to you, John. Yeah, thanks, Josh. You know, and I think that's uh, certainly a lot to think about and a lot of great points uh, as well. And, and like you said, it's really, you know, setting the stage, being transparent, making sure that all the stakeholders know the, the expectations up front and, and really, you know, just 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 having that that plan in place, you know, is, is very important. And like you said, there, there's always uh, differences between, um, you know, what the vendor vendors expectations versus the clients expect expectations and even you know if you have an implementation partner like us you know we have our own you know, experiences from from helping so many uh, clients implement systems that we bring that to the table to also you know, help lev level set the playing field connect you know the different um uh, groups together you know the different stakeholders together and, and just really help drive that process from start to finish absolutely absolutely and you know, John also talked a minute ago about making sure you have in place what you need to oversee the system, test the system, maintain the system. And, and that leads me into the next sort of big topic I wanted to talk about, which for me, uh, I probably sound like a broken record if you listen to some of our past episodes. I'm sure you heard me go on and on about this already, but is the importance of IT in this whole process. I think very often people think about TM system and they think, well, that's a compliance thing. The AML folks take care of that. And they don't pay enough attention to how incredibly important the IT component is in making this all happen. And at the most simple level, it's just that, hey, after all, you're implementing a complicated piece of software. Even if it's a, a more straightforward system, these are still complicated, very involved pieces of software. And if you're going to implement a complicated piece of software, you're going to need your IT folks there with you. So this ties a number of different threads together because it also goes back to the whole planning thing and it goes back to what John said about the stakeholders. I think other than your compliance folks and AML folks, the single most important stakeholder in any TM system implementation is the IT folks, which kind of, since I said a system implementation, that makes sense, right? It's, it's a system. And it's really important that the IT teams understand upfront how much of their time and energy and their resources are going to be required to make this kind of a project succeed. And not just for a few weeks or a couple of months, you're often going to need a lot of IT support for six months or 12 months to get this thing up and running. So making sure that your CTO or whoever it is in your organization is bought into this and is ready and able to provide you with the resources, I, I can't stress enough how important that is. And if you're wondering like, well, gee, what, is, what does IT, IT have to do in all of this? I'll give you some examples. For example, one of the hardest and most important things in implementing a TM system is the transaction code mapping. An organization might have hundreds of transaction codes in their core systems, and every one of those transaction codes has to be mapped to the appropriate code in the appropriate field in your transaction monitoring system. It's a super time-intensive and laborious process. And guess what? A lot of the time, the Compliance and AML folks, they don't necessarily know what all of these transaction codes are because it's a system thing. These are codes within the system. And the folks where the users don't necessarily have the insight to understand every one of these codes and exactly what they refer to. 
But the systems people, the IT people, they've got all the data dictionaries that explain all of this stuff. So they play a critical role in doing the transaction code mapping. Also, you have things like your ETLs, right? Any transaction monitoring system is going to insist that it receives its data in very specific formats with very specific field labels and all of that stuff. And and who are the people that actually make that happen? Who do the ETL processes? Well, that's your IT folks. So there again, it's like IT is, is an incredibly important part of this whole thing. And I actually like to think of it in a space metaphor, like I think the compliance folks and the AML folks, they're your astronauts, right? They know what to do with a rocket ship. They know what the rocket ship's supposed to be capable of, and they know how to fly the rocket ship. But they don't know how to build a rocket ship. The engineers have to build a rocket ship. And if the rocket ship breaks, the astronauts, maybe they can help fix it, but they're going to need an awful lot of support from the engineers to figure out exactly what needs to get done to fix that rocket ship. So to me, like the, the partnership that you need here, it's like the astronaut and the engineer, it's your compliance team and your IT team. It's exactly the same kind of thing. Really, really close partnership there. It's sort of one of the most important factors to make this whole thing work. Anything you wanted to add to that, John? Yeah, a lot of a lot of great points, and and you know, not just during or before the implementation, and during the implementation, and and, and I know we touched upon this on, on one of the other sessions, but it's you know after the implementation, you you need that support as well from you know from the IT team and, and building out that data governance uh, program, you know, to to really manage all things data because something could happen. You know, after you've implemented, implemented, maybe there's a, a daily file load or API connection that breaks and doesn't load the data right one day. So you need to have controls in place to really check and manage that type of information. Because if you're if that that occurs and occurs and it's a systemic issue, you know, three six months down the road when you catch it, well, you may have missed activity in your in your system, and then. You know the word that nobody likes is a look back could could eventually happen and, and then you, you get into a lot of issues so you know having that relationship you know throughout the life cycle and throughout the the life of that platform and even if you you decide to change platforms you, you just need that it support i think it's like you said josh it's it's one of the real critical components uh of just maintaining implementing of a, of a aml system Absolutely, John. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you, you raise such an important point that it's not just about the implementation, but the sort of care and feeding of the system afterwards. And, and I'll give you a great example of, of an implementation we did last year with uh, one of our, our foreign branch offices here. And it was, uh, it's a pretty small foreign branch office of, a, of an Asian bank um, here in New York. And they, uh, they were in that uh, first category I talked about before, which is the, um, we need to get out of trouble with the regulators, so we're going to put in the best-in-class uh, TM system that there is out there. And th the problem was that that's a very complicated system to put in, and they literally didn't have an IT department in New York. They had one IT manager who... who sort of was doing, you know, your bread and butter desktop support kind of stuff. He wasn't up for implementing a big complicated system. And we had flagged this for them at the beginning and said, hey, we think this is going to be a problem as we go along. Um, and eventually, as we got into the project, they ended up seconding somebody from headquarters because they realized they just didn't have the 
IT bandwidth on the ground or the IT skills on the ground to do what was necessary to get this project up and running. So they brought somebody over from headquarters, and that was great. And that person was a super good resource and had all the technical skills that were needed to help implement the project. The problem was that once the system was up and running and implemented, that IT resource went back to headquarters. Bye-bye. And then there was nobody left on the ground to actually take care of the day-to-day maintenance and all of the activities that come up once a complicated system like this is up and running. And within the space of like a month, they already were in really difficult position because they needed that kind of ongoing day-to-day support from IT and there just wasn't anybody there on the ground to provide it. Um, And, you know, this goes back to things we talked about in previous episodes where, you need to make sure that the TM system you're getting is aligned to the resources you have, right? So if you don't have a strong in-house IT department, don't get a really complex system that requires a lot of IT support because then there's a mismatch and, you know, and that's going to create all kinds of problems. So just a sort of, you know, cautionary tale there, like John said, that it's not just about getting the system up and running, but you, you still need IT support and all kinds of other things to keep the system fed and healthy after it's up and running. So there was one other thing I wanted to talk about that I think is really important for financial institutions to consider. And this may or may not apply. It applies especially if you're a foreign branch office. And what we see very often is that head office, understandably, wants to have a single uniform system, and they want to have uniform scenarios running across the institution in its various branches around the world. And that makes total sense from a head office perspective in terms of centralizing the system, centralizing the control, standardizing the platform and scenarios you're running. It's much easier to manage that way. The problem that we run into with something like that is that the risks involved in a foreign branch office are often so different than the risks faced by their head office. And I'll give you a a very specific example of of a financial institution we worked with a while ago. Um, Head office uh, was a a Southeast Asian bank, um, and they did mostly retail banking at their head office. And so the platform they rolled out and the scenarios they rolled out were almost entirely focused on retail banking, which makes sense because that was 95% of their business at home. But the foreign branch office in New York didn't even have any retail banking whatsoever, and almost 100% of their activity was correspondent banking. So they were basically clearing you know, clearing transactions for head office and clearing transactions for other international banks here in New York City. So the risk profiles of the two institutions were completely, completely different. But unfortunately, head office insisted on having a single platform and a single set of scenarios because they wanted to manage globally. What that meant in practice was that the risks of the FBO here in New York were almost entirely overlooked. And sure enough, what happened? They had virtually no alerts. They had virtually no cases. They had virtually no SARS, which wasn't surprising because the scenarios that were running weren't even designed to look at correspondent banking and all of their activity was correspondent banking. 
So I guess this is just one final sort of cautionary tale and something to look out for in that, you know, while it might be perfectly understandable or even good for headquarters to run things, it's also really important to explain to them that if the risks of a particular branch somewhere else in the world are entirely different than those at head office, that you've got to account for that in terms of either the system you're running or certainly at least the scenarios that you have in place in those various branches. So that's just something especially for for FBOs and, and big multinational banks to consider. That just seems like such a painfully obvious mistake. It does. On the other hand, you know, Rachel, like I was saying, I get it because from a management perspective, it's so much easier if you have the same scenarios and the same platform everywhere. Because then if you want to make a change or you want to adjust anything or add anything, you do it once and it rolls out across all of your branches globally. So it is so much easier from a management perspective. So from that perspective, I get it. It's just that from a risk perspective, it doesn't necessarily make sense. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me from this episode is the value and benefit of planning before, during, and after an implementation. Absolutely. Well said, Rachel. Okay, cool. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This wraps up our implementation support series. And thank you again, and hopefully chat soon. Thanks, Rachel. It's been great to be here. Yep. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening to this episode of AML Conversations, The Solution Series. More episodes will be posted in the coming months. If you find this installment interesting, there is more great content at amlrightsource.com. If we can help you with your financial crime compliance needs, schedule a meeting on our website. Together, we can reimagine compliance.